You can take your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 9. This morning, we'll be entering the most debated chapters in the Bible. Last week, we began this study of Romans 9 through 11 by overviewing the whole thing at once. And if you didn't get a chance to hear that, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that soon. But for a very short review of what we talked about last week, we talked about a a couple big things. First, just that this section is both difficult and debated. Second, the key to studying this section of the scriptures is to start with the right questions. Like what? Uh, Question one, something like, what is Romans 9 through 11 actually about? And the answer in one word is Israel. Romans 9 through 11 is about Israel. A good way to remember the three chapters, how they unfold. You think Romans 9 is about Israel in the past. Romans 10 is about Israel in the present. Romans 11 is about Israel in the future. Question number two, the why question. Why did Paul write these three chapters? Now, there's a lot of reasons, I'm sure, that we could give, but I focused on three. First, Paul wrote Romans 9 through 11 to defend his own love for his Jewish friends. This is what most of our text today is going to be about. Paul seemed like a sellout to many, especially his fellow Jews. It seemed like he just took their blessings and just gave them all away to the Gentiles with whom he spent all his time. So Paul writes to defend his own love for his own people. Second, Paul writes these chapters to answer the question that everyone would have been asking in his day that few of us even think to ask in our day. That is, how is it that most Jews reject what Paul says? And how is it that the only people that seem to believe what he says are actually Gentiles? Or put another way, how come when I go to church and we're reading the Jewish scriptures and singing the Jewish psalms, and worshiping the Jewish Messiah. How come when I go there and I look around, there's like 97 Gentiles and only two Jews there? Paul writes Romans 9 through 11 to answer that question. question everyone would have been asking in his day, but few of us would even think to ask in our day because we're so far removed from this. And then third, and most importantly, Paul writes these three chapters to defend the faithfulness of God. That's the most important thing Paul does in these chapters, and it is the most relevant to us too, especially after Romans chapter 8, where, where Paul ends with the incredible promise that there is nothing in all creation that will ever be able to separate us from God's love in Jesus Christ. But here's the thing. Didn't God say very similar stuff to Israel in the Old Testament? Didn't he make very similar promises to Israel in the Old Testament? And yet what was happening in Paul's day, and in our day too, to the vast majority of Israelites. Most of them were cut off from God's blessings. Most had completely rejected their Messiah. They wanted nothing to do with Jesus. To put it bluntly, most Jewish people in Paul's day were headed for condemnation. Does that fit with the Old Testament? I mean, doesn't that mean that God's promises have failed? This is the most important question for us to wrestle with in this section of Scripture. Why? Because if God has not been faithful to what he promised in the Old Testament, 
How can we really be sure that he'll be faithful to what he's promised to us in the New Testament? And you see what I'm saying? If God hasn't been faithful to what he promised in the past, how can we trust him for the future? And so what Paul sets out to do in these three chapters, more than anything else, I think more important than anything else, is he sets out to defend the faithfulness of God to what he promised. Now that's just a bit of what we talked about last week. Today we're going to get in the text. Look at Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. As we talked about last week, there's simply no way any reader could ever have expected Paul to say that after what he said in Romans 8. He takes us to the heights of joy at the end of chapter 8, culminating in this like confident declaration, nothing's ever going to separate us from God's love in Christ. And he says, I'm telling you the truth, I'm not lying to you, that I'm always sorrowful. I carry around unceasing anguish in my heart. It's hard to imagine a more unexpected turn in any, le- in any letter. And Paul even, I think, sets us up for this with all of the ways that he tries to tell us he's telling the truth. Did you notice that? I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying to you. My conscience bears witness with me in the Holy Spirit. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to tell someone you're telling the truth. And if anything, that actually creates anticipation that what he's about to say is probably going to be really, really good. But then suddenly Paul pulls the rug out from under everybody in verse 2. So I'm telling you the truth that I have great sorrow, constant anguish in my heart. How could that be? Why would that be? The answer to that is in verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. What we learn as soon as we get into Romans 9 is that no matter where Paul goes, no matter what fruit he has among the Gentiles, how many churches he plants, His Jewish brothers and sisters are never far from his mind. And whenever he thinks about them, about their current condition or their their final destiny, it causes him constant sorrow, unceasing pain, a pain that he carries around with him wherever he goes. Now, I want want to take a closer look today at that that verse, verse 3. I want you to think about what he's saying. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. I want to slow down. I want to settle, let that settle in. Note a few things. First, just to be clear, we should ask, who's Paul talking about when he says, my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh? This is not a trick question, but just, just note that Paul is talking about his Jewish friends who don't know Jesus yet. Now, it's certainly true that if you see the word brothers or brothers and sisters in Paul's letters, who's he usually talking about? Like when he says brothers, like if he says, you know, I urge you brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, who do you think he's talking about? The vast majority of the time that he says brothers or or some translations brothers and sisters, he's just talking about the church. That's why when he wants to talk about his Jewish brothers, he has to clarify in the text with something else. So that's what he does. Did you see that? He says, 
for my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh, because he's talking about a specific kind of brothers. He's talking specifically about his countrymen, about his Jewish friends who don't know their own Messiah yet. Now, second, again, just to make things very plain, this verse clearly indicates that Paul believed that Jews who don't trust and follow Jesus are lost. This is not popular in our day, actually. There's a lot of stuff written about this, but, but Paul did not think that there was one way for Gentiles to be saved and another way for Jewish people to be saved. It's Christ or nothing for everyone. And Paul knows very well that most of his Jewish friends and family are cut off from Jesus Christ, and so he knows they're headed for condemnation. There is simply no other explanation for why Paul says what he says here if he didn't believe that, that his Jewish friends were actually headed for condemnation. And then third, just as you think about this, can you even imagine a Christian, whether yourself or anyone else, ever saying anything like this? And I'm not even suggesting that the point here is that we should go around saying this. It's just to ask, like, Knowing what you know about Christ and about eternal judgment, can you even imagine saying something like this? I could wish that I could be accursed from Christ, separated from him for the sake of of somebody else. Now, what's Paul getting at? In the verse. Again, to be very plain, what Paul's getting at is that he would be willing to take the place of his Jewish friends and family who are under God's curse if it meant that they would be saved. I mean, that's the implication. Now, now let's stop and think about that then. Okay. First, has, has anyone ever said anything like that in the Bible? Can you ever remember anybody else talking like that? The answer is, I, yes, I can think of at least one place. <clears throat> in fact, this text here in Romans is probably pointing us back to that one story where we hear Moses do something just like this. It's the story that we read earlier today, all the way back in Exodus 32. After the Israelites had built the calf and worshipped the calf, God tells Moses what? He says, I've seen these people. They're a stubborn people. So leave me alone so my anger can burn hot against them so I can destroy them. And I'll start over with you. What does Moses do in response? Moses begins to plead with God for the forgiveness and the salvation of Israel. And then by the end of that chapter, this is what Moses says to the Lord. Oh Lord, what a great sin these people have committed. They've made themselves gods of gold. But now, please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of your book. What Paul says here is just like what Moses said there. In fact, I think he probably wants you to think about that. But second, I do think it's also important to point out the obvious, something Paul knew very well when he said this, and that is that he cannot take their place. He cannot bear their curse. He cannot carry their sins. In fact, even in the story that we read in Exodus 32, after Moses says this, 
or forgive their sin, or if not, blot me out of your book. Do you know what God says to him in response? God says, Moses, whoever has sinned against me, that's the person I will blot out of my book. In other words, I'm not making that kind of arrangement. They're going to they're gonna die for what they've done. Paul could plead and pray for people. Moses could plead and pray for people. But neither could bear the curse for those people. And as I, but as I think about this, especially the language of a cursed here in Romans, I'm reminded of one of my favorite verses in the Bible, something Paul wrote somewhere else. In Galatians, when he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. There's only one person who could ever bear God's curse for another person, the one who knew no sin, the son that God himself sent to the cross to save us. Paul knows this, and what he's saying here about what he could wish that he could do if he could does not contradict that. In fact, it's actually because he believes that there's only hope in Jesus that he feels such pain and sorrow for these people because he knows they just don't love Jesus. They don't want him. And so he's in anguish all the time. And, and so he pleads and he prays with God for God to change things, for God to change them. I think it's, you think, I mean, Paul is, what is he asking? He's, he's asking God to change them. Later, one chapter later, at the beginning of chapter 10, he comes back to this. You can look at chapter 10, verse 1. It says, brothers and sisters. Now he's talking to the church. It's brothers and sisters. My heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, for my brothers and sisters according to the flesh, is that they may be saved. Now, who exactly are these people that he loves so much? When we're talking about these chapters are about Israel, who are we talking about? What are these people like? Look at verse 4 of chapter 9 where Paul begins to describe the most privileged people in human history. <clears throat> they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. Now, now maybe, this, maybe you can just vaguely remember Romans chapter 3. Okay, this is a long time ago. But maybe you've read Romans since then, since we were there. But Paul asked this question at the beginning of chapter 3. Maybe remember then what's the advantage of being a Jew? Remember that he asks this. After he says, like in chapter 2, you know, there's no one's a Jew who's just one on the outside. What matters is what God's done in your heart. And then he just asks, so what's the point of being a Jew? What's the value? And you, do you remember his answer back in chapter 3? He says, much in every way. But in chapter 3, he only listed one thing. He says, Jews got God's words. But if you want him to fill out the list... It's right here. Romans chapter 9. These people, his people, are the Israelites, the people God himself rescued out of Egypt. And he says, and to these people belong the adoption. Out of all the people on earth, God, out of his own free will and because of his own love, chose to adopt them as his sons and daughters. And then he adds that these are the people who saw the glory 
They saw God's glory on the mountain. They saw God's glory in the wilderness. They saw the glory in the tent and in the temple. And he says, and these are the people who were given the covenants. Which covenants do you think he's thinking about? The covenant God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The covenant God made with Israel at Mount Sinai. The covenant God made with David, the king. And the new covenant God promised to fulfill one day. And to these people, he says, was the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. God gave it to them and not to other people. And to these people belongs the worship. What do you think he's talking about? The worship. He's probably thinking specifically about the worship at the tent and at the temple. In other words, God gave these people, and only these people, the sacrificial system, the priesthood, people who could actually bring them to God, sacrifices that they could offer so that they could be forgiven and meet with God. They were the only people on earth who had these. And to them, he says, belong the promises of God the promise of his presence, of his love, of a king who would come to rescue them and rule the world. There's never been a more privileged people in the history of the human race. But Paul's not finished yet because he hasn't even gotten to the best privileges. Chapter 9, verse 5. says, and to them belong the patriarchs. Who are those? That, That is to say, to them belong Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jews are the physical descendants of the heroes of our faith. But as good as being naturally connected to them might be, Paul most definitely saved the best for last. It says, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. I mean, it's one thing to have Abraham's blood running through your veins. It's another thing to have the same kind of blood as the Messiah running through your veins. From their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. These are the most privileged people in human history. And that is the greatest privilege of them all. From their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. But notice that's not the end of the verse. Because Paul has one thing he wants to say about the Christ. That is as astounding as anything he says anywhere else in Romans. Look at verse 5 again. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all things, blessed forever. Amen. Did you, hear that Paul, did you hear what Paul says in that verse about that Jewish guy who lived like 20 years before him? <laughs> By the name of Jesus from Nazareth, <clears throat> the one called the Christ, says that Jewish man, that Christ is in fact God over everything on earth. And he is worthy of our eternal praise. Now, we should note at least two things about that. First, that's the greatest privilege of all. That's the point in the context. Not only did God adopt the Jewish people as his own sons and daughters, God himself became a Jew. The Son of God became a human being, but not just any human being. The Son of God became a Jew. These people saw God's glory on the mountain, in the wilderness, in the tent, and in the temple. But then last of all, they saw the glory of God in the face of a Jew, Jesus. There has never been a more privileged people in human history. But the second thing we should note about the last part of that verse 
is that Paul had already come to see that Jesus was in fact God in human flesh. This was no late development concocted centuries later by a bunch of power-hungry men who were duking it out at church councils, as it can be portrayed in popular literature or by so-called experts on the History Channel. Now, what, what John writes, what John, remember the text I entered, what John writes about Jesus in John 1 finds its parallel in Paul's writings here in Romans 9. John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. <clears throat> and then he says, and that same Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. The glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's what John says, and here's what Paul says. From their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all things, worthy of eternal praise. Amen. You see, there's never been a more privileged people than Israel. But what is the problem? Why does Paul feel such pain every time he thinks about the Jewish people, about his own people? It's because even though the Christ came from them and to them and for them, they just didn't want him. Not the way he came, not the way he lived, not the way he taught, and definitely not the way he died. Again, to use John's language from John 1, he came to his own people, but his own people did not receive him. In spite of all their privileges, the vast majority of Jewish people from Paul's day to our day are cut off from their own Messiah. And so no matter what success Paul had in his gospel preaching among the Gentiles, this was the constant sorrow that he never got over. That's what the first five verses of Romans 9 are about. I think they're powerful in their own right, <clears throat> but they also lead us right into what I think is the most important thing Paul says in all of these chapters. The claim that he makes in Romans 9, verse 6, which we're not going to unpack today, but I want us to see it. Romans 9, verse 6, he says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Even though the vast majority of, God, of Paul's own people have rejected their own Messiah, this doesn't mean God's promises have failed. It's not as though the word of God has failed. Why not? How do we know that? You can read ahead on your own. You can study that this week and uh, over the next couple weeks. But we'll just stop there in the text and, and let that settle in, the claim. But in spite of this, it's not as though the word of God has failed. Now, I wrestled this week with, with how much of the text to cover. In the end, I, I decided to walk slowly through this shorter section, not only because it sets us up for what's ahead, but primarily because I wanted us to just think about these verses. I felt like if we, if we went much further, we would think about other good things, but it'd be different good things. There's specific things about these, these verses that I think ought to press in on our hearts. And I suspect that these opening verses have been fairly neglected in studies of Romans 9 through 11. Part of why I suspect that is I've been teaching on these chapters for a long time, and I usually neglect these verses uh, quite a lot. So they're easy to gloss over quickly. And so I want to I share three things I've been reflecting on this week okay, for, for us to think about what we ought to take away 
from a few verses about Paul and the Jews. The first thing is that having privileges, even having lots of them, is not enough to save anybody. There's never been a more privileged people in human history than Israel. And yet when Paul writes in his day, or when we look around in our own day, what good has it done? I mean, whether it's having social or economic privileges or ethnic advantages or, or greater religious exposure, none of that will guarantee you anything from God. You could grow up, I mean, in our thinking, you could grow up in a Christian home, in a nation where Christianity is acceptable, in a church where Christ is preached, and you could still be lost. You could be baptized as an infant, baptized as an adult, both, still be lost. You could be able to quote vast portions of Scripture, most Jews could, still be lost. If the Jewish people can rightly claim the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, the patriarchs, and the very Messiah himself, and still have Paul weeping over them because they're lost, do not think that any privileges you've had will make you safe either. The only safe place when judgment day comes is going to be in Christ. There is no condemnation if you're in Christ, connected to him, but outside of Christ, no matter what you've had in life, apart from trusting fully and solely in him, you will be lost. I think that's one thing I take away from this. The second, and this is not going to be particularly profound, I know, but I think it is fair to say that Paul would be happy if we read what he wrote and started to pray for more chances to share the gospel with the Jewish people. I was doing some research this weekend because I've known that there are some very Jewish areas in the Twin Cities, like in St. Louis Park. And it was helpful for me to at least consider that there are nearly 65,000 Jewish people in the Twin Cities. I think that there's like 36,000 people in Richfield. There's 65,000 Jewish people just in the Twin Cities. Now, who knows what God will do with relationships we already have, with Jewish friends maybe you already have, or with, with opening up new relationships for us. But what seems to be a very Pauline thing to do would be to care about Jewish people, to pray for God to open doors for the gospel, and then to point Jewish friends we have to their own Messiah. But then lastly, I'd like us to take what we've seen today about Paul's own heart for those he shares a physical relationship with and to consider how much we long for the salvation of those we share a physical relationship with. I mean, Paul was, was literally, he was sent far away from home to other people with the gospel. But even so, he longed for and prayed for the salvation of his own flesh and blood. Even though Jesus specifically told him to go somewhere else. Okay. I've been thinking a lot about this. I've been really challenged by this this week. <clears throat> How? For me, a couple ways. Maybe for you, different ways. I don't know. First, I've been challenged about how I pray for my own kids. Now, I love my kids. I want them to know Jesus, <clears throat> to love him most of all. 
But I've been challenged this week about how fervently or not so fervently I pray for them about this. How about you? Do we plead with God for God to reveal himself to our kids? Do we strive to show them the glory and the beauty of Jesus? Do we teach them the gospel or just tell them what to do or not to do? Second, I've been challenged about how much I really care about my flesh and blood relatives in regard to their own spiritual condition. Now, you may be like me in that you don't have any relatives living near you at all. Or you may be the opposite and been Minnesotans for generations. That certainly may shape how things can play out with this. But the main question is the same. How much do we really care about the spiritual condition of our own flesh and blood relatives? Like, if they're lost, do you care? Do I care? Do I, do I actually believe that they're headed for condemnation? And if I do, do I care about that? And then third, I've been, I've been challenged by how much I care or don't care about the spiritual condition of those that I'm just in close proximity with. Or put more plainly, like how much do I really care about the people on my own block? I, and I realize this is, this is extending the text a little bit, but it's not that much of an extension because <clears throat> Paul was deeply and constantly burdened with thoughts about his own countrymen, the people he shared nationality with. And I think, do we care about the spiritual condition of the other citizens of our own country. And a good test of that is if we care about the people on our block. I mean, we may say, and I, I say this, you know, we have a heart for the nations. We may give to the spread of the gospel to the far corners of the world. We may even say, we're open to taking the gospel ourselves to the ends of the earth. But a good question for us all to ask ourselves first is how's it going with trying to take the gospel to the end of my block? Or if you're an apartment dweller, how's it going with taking Christ to the complex? And I'm not saying this because I'm awesome at this. I'm saying this because I want to grow in this. I'm saying this because I've just been struck this week by Paul's heart for his own countrymen for his own flesh and blood. May God help us to care about the spiritual condition of those nearest to home. To love them enough to plead with God for them and to do what we can by the grace of God to bring them to Jesus. Let's pray for that. Father, would you take this challenge, I think just an open door into the heart of Paul, And would you take these thoughts and press them in that we might pray for the salvation of those we know, of those we love, of those we see day after day. But would you not only lead us to pray, but would you open up doors for us, doors with Jewish friends, doors with our neighbors, doors with our kids, with our parents, with our brothers and sisters. And Lord, when you, when you open up those doors, 
would you give us courage and wisdom and love to share the gospel of our Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.